We've been making our way uh, verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the whole New Testament. 2 Corinthians 3 is where we are. If you were here last week, the beginning of chapter 3, you found out they had been asking Paul for letters of commendation, references. Paul, where are your references? Other teachers have references, and they were doubting him, doubting his authority, doubting his apostleship. They put him in a place to sort of defend himself. And that's where he started with this. And as he's defending himself, he gets sort of sidetracked into this discussion of law and spirit. That his ministry is one of bringing the spirit of God to people. The understanding of the indwelling of the spirit in the believer's life. Relative to and compared to the other teachers that are there in Corinth, well, his detractors, those that are sort of criticizing him, evidently we find out as we go through, these are people of a Jewish background that were brought up with the law of Moses and all the religious rules and regulations. And now they're saying, well, we believe in Jesus, yes, but we still have to keep the law of Moses and all the traditions and all the trappings and all the culture that goes along with that. Jesus is good, but we still have to tithe. Jesus is good, but we still have to keep these fasts and keep these feasts and do these things. And that's what Paul is having to defend against. So that's just a little bit by way of introduction. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 7, on through verse 11. We're going to do the rest of the chapter. I'll read a representative portion, and then we will study together. Verse 7 says, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory... The ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. And this is a glorious passage, isn't it? There's a whole lot of glory going on in this passage. And as we read through that, like you, I go, what in the world is Paul talking about? So if you found that confusing, that's why we're here, right? Because we're here to study together. And I pray that when you leave, you'll understand exactly what's being talked about, or I haven't done my job. How many of you understand what I mean when I say the word legalism? Legalism. A couple of hands going up. Yeah, some of you are just too tired to raise your hand. Oh, pastor, my hand is so, I'm too embarrassed. Yeah, legalism, it's the idea that Christianity is just boiled down to a bunch of do's and don'ts. And one of the greatest damages to the power and the joy of the church is boiling it down to just simply do's and don'ts, just simply a set of moral rules that we keep devoid of a relationship with God. And so that's what Paul is talking about here in this section. All right, so chapter three, verse seven, Paul said, if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, what does he mean when he's talking about written and engraved on stones? We're back to what was written and engraved on stones, the 10 commandments. And he calls it the ministry of death. Isn't that interesting? He calls the giving of the Ten Commandments. If you read your back in your Old Testament, Exodus 24 or so is when Moses is called to go up on the mountain with God. And God just gives him all this information of how to build the tabernacle and how to do the ministry. And finally gives him the Ten Commandments. And right before that, I mean, they're at Mount Sinai and it is shrouded in fear and trembling and power and the thunderings and lightnings of God. And all of it was sort of like shock and awe. And the people were in awe of the power of God. And they said, oh, Moses, we don't want to talk to God. You talk to him for us and you tell us what he said. 
So Moses goes up on the mountain. He spends time with God 40 days. And while he's there, meanwhile, back at the ranch, they begin to go, well, we don't think Moses is coming back. It's been over a month. We haven't seen him. So they make a false god. They make this golden calf. You know that, right? They make the golden calf. They begin to sing and dance and do immoral things around the golden calf. And Moses comes down the mountain and says, it sounds like war in the camp. No, 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 that's not war. They're partying. So he drops the commandments and Moses is the only guy that broke all 10 commandments at one time, drops the stones and just, Aaron, what are you thinking? Why aren't you restraining the people? And that's the conversation. So that's what he calls the ministry of death because on that day, 3,000 people die. And all the law, listen very carefully because this is where the church gets all messed up. The law has a very distinct purpose in our life. This set of rules The Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. All those things have a great purpose. The purpose is to show us our sin. The purpose is to show us we aren't perfect, that we need a Savior. And once it shows us our sin, it also tells us what the penalty is, is death. So Paul says the giving of the law was in a sense a ministry of death. It brought death. It brought a curse to people because you go, well, I see this is the law is good and it's perfect and it's right and it's holy and all that. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is with me. I can't keep it. I can't do it. Have you come to that place in your life where you just go, I give up. I can't consistently live the perfect life. And if you get there and you cry out, God, If my relationship with you is based on me being perfect, then I'm sunk. You're in a great place. Because it's from there that you cry out, well, how can I be saved? And God says, it's through my son. That's how you can be saved. You can be forgiven and made righteous as a gift. But for Paul here, those that were coming, the Jewish Christians that were coming in saying, hey, all these people, they got to keep the law of Moses. Don't you know, Paul, the law of Moses was glorious. Moses is glorious. The law is glorious. Paul's saying, I don't disagree with you. I agree with you. All that stuff in the Old Testament, it's all glorious. That's what he says here. If the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory is passing away? Hang on to that. We'll come back to it. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? So Paul's not saying that the law of Moses isn't glorious. He's just saying, hey, we got something much better. The specific reference, though, of the glory was not the mountain burning with fire and Moses entering the cloud and not the thunderings and the lightnings. The specific reference, did you catch it there? The glory of the Old Testament, of the giving of the law, was wrapped up in the gloriousness of Moses' countenance, his face. And it was shining. It says right here that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. That's the glory Paul's talking about, which glory was passing away. So it's an amazing story. So Moses breaks the commandments. They deal with Aaron and 3,000 people die. And now Moses has to go back up the mountain. God says, okay, Moses, cut me two more tablets. We're going to do this over again. Goes back up the mountain, comes down again with the second set of the tablets of stone. And when he comes down, he comes down off the mountain and He meets with Aaron and Aaron's like, "Uh, hey, Moses, uh, I don't think you know this, but it's hard to look at you because you're glowing. You've got the high mo glow going on. And it's not makeup. It's not, he's been in the presence of God. And so his countenance, his face 
is shining. People pay good money for makeup that can do that, right? You want to make my skin glow, but not with Moses. He's not making it up. It's real deal. And he's got this appearance. Moses, you're, you're sort of shining. So Moses talks to the people. So now they tell him, he talks to the people and his face is unveiled. And they see, they see the difference in his life because he's been in the presence of God. But then when he walks away from the people, he puts a veil, a covering over his face. And when you read it in Exodus, you think, well, clearly Moses did that because he's afraid of hurting the eyes of people. It says there that they couldn't look at him because he was so glowing, such a glowing personality. Have you ever met someone that kind of had a glowing personality? Now, like, multiply that by a million. Just some people just shine, right? I think Christians should shine. That's what this passage is really about. But Moses has got this glow. But look what he says here. The glory of his countenance was passing away. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Just like you got to go to the tanning salon, you got to get out in the sun and you get a tan, but if you're not in the sun for a while, your tan fades. Same kind of thing. So if the point is, if that was glorious, then verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? I mean, if Moses was shining from being in the presence of God giving the law, then the giving of the Spirit is more glorious. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, what's Paul talking about there? The same thing, that the law not only kills you, it condemns you. This is the challenge with trying to keep a set of religious rules. Because all the rules can do is show you when you're wrong. The rules can never tell you, hey, you're doing a great job. You know, hey, you're doing fine. Because the problem is we break them. And all the rules can do is show you when you're wrong. That's all that they point out. And once you've got there, it's done its job. The glory of the law is in showing you you need a Savior. But once you get there, you don't need the law anymore. Paul says in Galatians, it's a schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. And if that was glorious, then the ministry of righteousness, that righteousness is given to you as a gift, then that, Paul says, is even more glorious. Don't you agree? How much more glorious? Look at verse 10, and we'll kind of wrap up this idea. He says, for even what was made glorious, the law, the giving of the law, had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. So he tells us the law was meant for a season and a time, and it had its glory for a time, but it was meant to fall into the background because of something new that was happening, the Spirit-filled life, the giving of the Spirit. So Paul's saying, look, I agree with you that the law is glorious. I don't disagree. I'm with you. But there's just something more glorious now. I don't know how many of you are my generation, or maybe you remember when home video games first came out. Did anybody have like the first original Atari game? I did. I was a teenager at that time. I had Atari. Did you have Pac-Man? Yeah, Pac-Man. So how crude was that? I mean, like at the time, it's like, this is amazing. All my friends wanted to come over. I was the most popular kid on the block because I had Atari. We had Pac-Man and Asteroids. And it was as clunky and as pixelated as you could get. But at the time, it was glorious because that's all there was. But now, have you seen video games, what they look like now? I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable in its realism. So how would you like to go back to playing Atari? What do you think if two kids sat next to each other and one's playing a modern video game and the other kid is sitting there gloating about his Atari? You think the other kid is going, eh, well, that's a pretty awesome game. He's laughing at him going, 
I can't believe you're playing that when there's something so much better. And what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, and I think what he says to our church today, to all churches today, is why would we want to get wrapped back up in a relationship with God based on keeping a set of rules, based on legalistic things? And one group decides, here's the rules we're going to keep. Because nobody really does it all. You can't keep them all consistently. So we say, well, here's the rules that are important to us. Our important rules that we wear a shirt and tie. That's important to us. Our important rules are that we do this or we don't do that. And then we judge other people by those rules. And then those other people have their rules that they judge these people by. And it's just an absolute mess. Why would we go back to that when we have something that he says that's so much more glorious relative to the spirit, the law had no glory at all. The law was given for a time to point people to Christ. Romans 8 says the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So God did what the law could never do through his son. The law could never transform a life. This is the real challenge of church. If for you, when someone says church, all that rings in your mind is a bunch of moral rules I have to keep, then you've been deceived somewhere along the line. That's not what church is about. Church is about a living relationship with our Father in heaven through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We've been forgiven, redeemed. We've been made whole. And now we have this wonderful father-son, father-daughter relationship. There's discipline. There's still right. There's still wrong. There's still truth. But I am loved. I'm not condemned. All the law can bring is condemnation. Anybody ever feel condemned at church? Just getting beat up. You don't do this. You don't do that. You're probably at a law-based church if you're feeling that way. But for real, that's the deal. The law can just condemn. And we just beat each other over the head with, you're not doing enough. And we're not doing enough. And they're not doing enough. And I know there's lots of questions about this. We'll answer some of those as we go on. So he says, verse 12, therefore, because there's something so much more glorious, the spirit-filled life, therefore, since we have such hope, such hope for the power of the spirit in our lives, therefore, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. So he's continuing to emphasize the passing away of the glory of the law. And he says, look, as for me and the guys, my team, We are going to speak freely and openly. That's what he means by boldness of speech. I am going to be unreserved because we got something great. If the guys talking about the law are willing to be bold, then Paul says, I am going to be even more bold because we have something so much better, so much more fulfilling, so much more life-giving. Law, listen very carefully, rules never transform lives. Never. Rules cannot produce change in a life but the Spirit can. The Spirit of God gives life. So Paul says, we have this kind of hope, so we use great boldness of speech. And he compares himself, he compares his ministry to Moses. Remember, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face, and here's why he put the veil, not because he was afraid to hurt their eyes with his high mo glow, but because he didn't want them to see the end of what was passing away. He knew, so he'd go into the presence of God, he'd get charged up, the radiation of God's presence, his glory. By the way, God's glory is his person, who he is, his loving kindness, his forgiveness. Read in Exodus, 
It's the greatest statement about the character of God. Merciful, forgiving, just, gracious, all those things. Long-suffering. So Moses would spend time in the presence of God. And then when he'd come out, that glory from God, the effect would start to diminish. So he would put a veil on his face, not so he didn't hurt their eyes, but so that they couldn't see that his glory was fading. You know that feeling? Sort of like embarrassed. You think Moses was embarrassed? Or you think he was thinking, well, what are people going to say if they see my glory is fading? I want them to think I'm glorious all the time. If Moses had Facebook, his profile picture would be right as soon as he got out of the presence of God, he'd take a picture. And then everybody would look at his picture, his profile picture, and say, man, that Mo, he can really shine. He must be like that all the time. But Moses knew that it faded. And I think that's kind of how church becomes, isn't it? We know that we can only be good for so long. I mean, in my own power, as far as rule keeping goes, I can only keep the rules. I'll keep them while other people are watching, but when I'm not with other people, I don't keep them. And I keep the ones that are meaningful to us. So we put this veil on. The law, rule-keeping, performance-based religion is a veil. It tries to convince people that righteousness comes by keeping the law. That's the veil. It's a covering. It's passing away. How do you veil your face with law? When you see other people, you want to tell them all the good things you're doing. Oh, when I was up at 4 a.m. praying this morning, God put you on my heart. Tell people how spiritual I am. Problem is, I haven't got up at 4 a.m. all year. One day I get up at 4 a.m. because I can't sleep and I pray for you. And then everybody's got to know I'm up at 4 a.m. because that's what I want you to think of me. But the rest of the time, when I'm home watching movies I shouldn't be watching, I put the veil on. I don't tell you about that. I keep myself veiled. And this is the cool thing. Paul says we can use great boldness of speech, not like Moses who had to veil himself. One of the things that brought by the spirit-filled life is when you know that you know that you're saved by grace, you have so much more freedom in your life to be honest about who you are. You can take the veil off and you can speak boldly about God. How do I know? How do you know if you're still living by performance? If you ever feel like you've got to hide who you really are, hide the reality of your life, then maybe you're still living either hypocrisy or by performance. If you're afraid for other people to know, and if you're judging other people, if you have a measuring rod, and here's what you measure yourself by, here's how I know if I'm good with God or not, because I did my devotional this morning. That somehow God loves me more if I did my devotional this morning. And God loves me more if I prayed for 30 minutes today and I went through my prayer list. And if that's the way you think, you're still trying to hold on to the glory of law-based, performance-based living. The reality is God loved you before you ever read your Bible. God loved you while you were steeped in sin and knew nothing of him. While you were at your worst moment, God loved you the most he ever could. He can't love you any more than he did when he sent his son to be the salvation and the forgiveness of your sins. It's done. The law says, you got to do. And the spirit says, it's all been done. All of it. Not 90-10, as we said. It's all been done. Well, if people knew who I really was, they'd reject me. They'd be disappointed in me. That's all performance-based living. And it all requires a veil. The beauty of the church is we get to be honest about who we are. And we'll see that as we go through here. But verse 14, but their minds, the Israelites' minds at the time were blinded. 
Their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. So Paul takes it from Old Testament, brings it up to new. He says, at that time, when Moses covered himself so they couldn't see the fact that Moses wasn't as glorious all the time, that it wasn't their eyes that were blinded. It was their minds. He hid them. Moses hid them from the reality that the law has a fading glory. And that's what we do with each other. We use that veil to try to hide the fading glory. We don't keep all the rules all the time. And it wasn't their eyes that were blind. It was their mind. They were made to think that the law would have this eternal glory. And so to this day, he says, the same veil remains in thinking that salvation is through my works of righteousness. That's the same veil. That's the veil still to this day. They read the Old Testament, they don't get it. They read Isaiah 53, they don't get the suffering servant. They don't see Jesus. It doesn't make sense because there's a veil. Paul says even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on the heart. They can't see it. By the way, the blinded is the word hardened. How many of you ever had cataracts? Anybody have cataracts? Creates a, a fogginess in your eyes. It's from the hardening of your lens, the lens of your eye. You can't see clearly when your heart is hard. See, their Savior came and they rejected him. And because of that, a veil dropped over their heart. Whenever a person rejects Christ, it shrouds them in darkness and they can't see clearly. The Bible without the Spirit of God is just information. The Bible without faith, that's what he says right here. Did you see it? Even when Moses is read, even when the Old Testament is read, there's still a veil. So you might be here today and we're reading the New Testament and we're reading the word of God and some of us are just feeding on it. And others are just going, I don't get that. What does this mean? I don't understand this. And it may be that without Christ, if you're not saved, then we can read it all day long and you'll never get it. Because that's what he says here. The veil is lifted in Christ. Look at verse 16. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. All of a sudden, oh, do you remember what it was like when you first realized that the God of the universe was speaking to you in his word, when it became personal, not just verses to memorize, not just going through the motions of my devotional time. I remember that. For the apostle Paul, it was the day he has that Damascus road experience and he's blinded. You remember that he's blinded? Remember, Paul was a Jew. He understands this. He was blinded and then has hands laid on him. Something like scales fell off his eyes. His cataracts disappeared, his spiritual cataracts. And all of a sudden he could see clearly. Did you have that kind of experience where all of a sudden it's like, wow, I get it. This is for me. God is speaking to me in the pages of his word. And we see Jesus in the Old Testament. We see him when Abraham takes his son Isaac on the mountain. That's a picture of Jesus. And we see him when the Israelites are being bitten by serpents and they have to look to the serpent on the pole, a picture of Christ and salvation all the way through. But you don't get it. Without Christ, you go, I don't get it. And even to this day, when we go to Israel, we see the Orthodox Jews there. You ever seen pictures of the Orthodox Jews and they got the little box on their head and they got the thing wrapped up their arm? So to the Orthodox Jews, some sects of the Orthodox Jews, they have this thing that they wear on their head. It's a little leather box right here on their forehead. It sticks out about that far. And it's got contained in it scriptures some Old Testament scriptures. And then they've got one that they wrap a certain way around their arm and it wraps all the way up their arm. And they have a very ritualistic way to wrap that. And they do that because when they read Deuteronomy 6, 4, that God says, I want you to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. My word should be bound on your hand 
and as frontlets between your eyes. And they take that super literally and they say, well, this must be what pleases God if I put God's word between my eyes. And I'm not poking fun at them. I'm not belittling them. I'm saying it's sad because the veil, all these things are speaking of Christ. And in Christ, they understand to have the word written on my heart happens by the spirit, not by a set of laws. So even to this day, when you try to witness to a Jewish person, oftentimes there's a veil over their heart, lest they accept Christ, lest a person accepts Christ, the veil is still there, whether it's you or me or anybody. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now there's a verse that people love to grab and yank out of context. See, pastor, the Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty so I can do whatever I want. I have the liberty to do whatever. Well, first he says, the Lord is the spirit, which is a great Trinitarian comment. Jesus, when he says the Lord, he means Jesus. The Lord is the spirit. So Jesus and the spirit of God are one in the same character. The spirit is called the Holy Spirit, right? You've read your Bible, it's the Holy Spirit. So what should the Holy Spirit produce in us? Unholiness? What if we said that you had in you the unholy spirit? Some of your teenagers you think have that. The unholy spirit. But what would you expect a Holy Spirit to produce in a life? Somebody say holiness. Holiness produces something in our life. So the Lord and the Spirit are consistent. We know what the Spirit is doing. We know when the Spirit is working because it's consistent with Jesus. So Paul's not saying where the Spirit of the Lord, there's liberty. We can do whatever we want, live however we want. You can't read Paul's writings and think that he was all in favor of people throwing caution to the wind and living in sin. Do we understand that? That's not what Paul is saying here. But in the context, what is he saying? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty from the yoke of bondage, of being right with God through my own works and religious rituals. I'm free from that. You know that feeling? When you're so bound up trying to do everything just right, trying to please God by this, trying to please God by that, and trying to earn his favor, what a burden. And they knew that. Paul knew that. Peter knew that. Even Jesus said, they come to me and I'll give you rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. You know the verse, right? I am humble, lowly in heart. That's how he describes himself. So what kind of liberty is Paul talking about? Not liberty from love. So where the spirit of the Lord is, where the spirit of the Lord is not, then you still got to figure out there's laws for you. The laws for the unrighteous. But for us as Christians, that's who he's talking to. He's talking to the church. He's talking to you and to me. Where the spirit of the Lord is, we no longer need to be held captive and by the burden and the curse of rule keeping. Liberty from the work and toil and liberty from wearing the veil. Isn't that great? That's the freedom. Freedom to not put on the veil again. To not try to pretend. You know, this is when churches really come alive. This is when church really starts to come alive. When people go, you know what? I know I'm not saved. I'm saved by grace. And you're saved by grace. And you're saved by grace. And you're saved by grace. And we don't have to pretend that we're all self-righteous. Wouldn't that be great? We just be honest about our struggles. Be honest about the fact that we're on a road to somewhere. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. And we can be honest about that. We're all at different places on that road. Well, that's what Paul says next. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. I wonder if you've ever prayed for transformation in your life. Oh, Lord, I just need a change in my life. I need something to change. I can't live like this anymore. Lord, would you transform me? He says, absolutely, I will. And here's how it happens. This verse, I cannot express enough the monumentalness of this passage. So he starts out by saying, but we all, as opposed to just Moses, it was Moses that would go in the presence of God. The people stayed away. But we all, with unveiled face, nothing between me and God, honesty, transparency, openness, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed. The basic principle, this is what you got to go home with. Are you ready, church? The basic principle is we become what we worship. That's what he says right here. Laws, memorizing laws, knowing laws, knowing the rules will never transform your life. Ever. Ever. Beholding the presence of the Lord will. That's what he says here. The basic principle, we become what we worship. Here's how it works. Are you ready? You fall in love with a football team, whatever team that might be. And then pretty soon you're watching all the games. And then pretty soon you're buying the tickets and you got season tickets. And then we see you on TV and you have your team name plastered across your chest. Your face is painted. You've got the shirt on, all the clothes. You know all the stats. Why? We become what we worship. That's just a rough example of how that principle works. It was like this in the Psalm. Psalm 115 says, but their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. This is speaking of the statues, the idols that they would worship. They have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them and so will all who trust in them. So the heart has a passion, a God, an idol, something that I spend my time in worship of. That's where I spend my time. And then I put myself in the presence there and I behold that thing. And then that thing begins to change my life, transforms me. And that's a principle, just like any other principle in the Bible, like reaping and sowing, we reap what we sow. You can say it a couple other ways. Beholding is becoming, or to revere is to resemble. We choose what we want in our life. We spend time with it, and then it changes us. It transforms me. Did you notice how he said beholding as in a mirror? Not a great translation. It's really one Greek word that means to see in a glass, to see in a glass. And in those days, mirrors were just polished metal. A mirror has to be a smooth surface. It's the most important thing. It has to be a smooth surface so that it reflects the light. That's all a mirror does is reflect. And it can't choose who it reflects. All it does is reflect whatever's in front of it. Are you with me? So you got up in the morning, maybe this morning, and you say, well, I better go see how nasty I looked from last night. Got your hair all over the place. If I had hair, it'd be all over the place. And you stand in front of the mirror, and the mirror, the mirror never goes, well, you know what? This morning, I'm not reflecting you. I don't like the way you look. I'm not reflecting you this morning. Does the mirror ever decide that? The mirror just reflects whatever's in front of it. Now listen, this is really important. We, you, I, are people are mirrors. This is the principle. You will reflect. That's what really is being said. Not beholding as in a mirror. Not, it's like we're looking at God in a mirror. But like mirrors, we reflect what's in front of us. Like a mirror, 
Moses reflected the glory of God, but then it faded. But we, with unveiled face, not beholding God in a mirror, but beholding God like a mirror, and then we become, we're changed. Did you see that word? Metamorphosis in the Greek. A change happens, and our lives begin to transform. You know, I do counseling with people, meet with people all the time, and it never fails. Someone will come, I'm anxious about this. I'm struggling with that. Our marriage is in the basement. Our marriage is terrible. We're just struggling all over the place, financial, whatever it might be. And I say, tell me about how much time you're spending with the Lord. And usually the answer is, I don't really I don't spend much time with the Lord, pastor. Thankfully, they're honest. Well, what are you spending your time doing? Well, statistically speaking, you're probably spending your time on social media or on screen time. That's where people spend their time these days. And so if it's true, you become what you behold, maybe the video games you play are having more effect than you thought. Maybe the TV or the movie. I had a woman that came in for counseling years ago. She was just going through a divorce with her husband. And we got to talking. And she mentioned one night being home watching TV. I said, what were you watching? She said, Desperate Housewives. I said, well, there you go. There you go. We think it's not effective, but it does. It sort of changes us in ways because not only does God tell us the principle is true, now scientists are discovering, if you haven't looked it up, check it out. It's like this new scientific whirlwind that's happening. Mirror neurons. Have you heard of that? Anybody heard of mirror neurons? You know I like to challenge you with biology stuff when you come. So you can look it up. They're discovering, it's like monkey see, monkey do. And actually they're doing the research in monkeys right now and they're finding out that there's neurons in the brain that are activated when you do a certain behavior. And then when you watch someone else do that behavior, the same neurons are activated. So they call them neurons. You know it naturally because if you've been around a baby and you've ever watched the baby smile at you, you smile back. Or you try to get the baby to smile by smiling at it. That's the mirror thing happening. You know, when we started singing our song after prayer, as soon as somebody stands up, what else happens? Boom, everybody stands up because we mirror each other. And God has meant it that way. He's designed you with neurons in your brain to mirror behavior. And he's done that so that when you get in his presence, you will mirror his behavior and not the world you live in. Otherwise, we're conformed. If you go out there and you spend all your time beholding garbage, what do you become? Garbage. I didn't say it. You said it. If you spend your time mirroring empty things, what do you become? Empty. If you spend your time mirroring and reflecting worldly things, what do you become? Worldly. If you spend your time in front of holy things, what do you become? So you guys understand the principle. This principle will save your life. How do you do it, Pastor? You get into the Word of God. You get into the Word. You spend time meditating on it. You spend time asking God to help you understand His Word. When you're in the car, you crank up Christian music. Turn off that junk. When I was a horseshoer, I'd listen to this country music. See, I'm not condemning country music. That would be back under law. But I'm telling you, for me, I found myself working around horses and it's just like you got to listen to country music when you're working around horses. And I'm singing this song, you know, whose bed have your boots been under? And I'm going, wait a second. Wow, I'm singing about adultery, you know, and I didn't want to do that anymore. But I was hearing the song and I was mimicking it back. So I just want to inundate my life with God things. Not because it's legalistic, 
not because the rule is there, but because I know what it does to me. And that's why he says it right here. He says, we are being, as we reflect, spend time reflecting on God, we are being transformed. Metamorphosis, the caterpillar to the butterfly, the real transformation. You can give the caterpillar all the rules about flight. You can explain to the caterpillar what nectar tastes like and how the tongue of a butterfly works. But unless that thing is transformed, the rules will never get it there. But it's passive. It happens to us. We spend time with the Lord. He transforms our lives into that same image. We become what we behold for ruin or for restoration. That's the principle. We become what we behold to ruin us or to restore us to what we were meant to be in the image of Christ. And it goes from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's the Spirit's role in our life. And I like it because in Christ, you know, I found something that I will never exhaust. I can pursue God until the day you bury this body in the ground and my spirit goes to be with the Lord. As an athlete, how many of you remember the glory days? The older we get, the better we used to be. You remember that? When I was your age, I lifted Mack trucks with my teeth. I walked uphill to school both ways, beating off bears with my notebook. You know, the older I get, the better I used to be. We remember the glory days, and we also recognize that my human body, the glory is fading. I can get so strong, but then I'm fading. But this pursuit of God, I will never exhaust it. I go from glory to greater glory because it's the Spirit of God. Even though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed every day as I spend time with the Lord. And I expect to grow continually. We haven't arrived yet, right, church? And that's the cool thing about as we come with unveiled face, we recognize we're all being transformed and some of us are still just fresh out of the cocoon. Some of us are still trying to spread the wings a little bit and others are flying. But the flying butterfly doesn't look at the cocoon butterfly and go, you loser. You're still doing the cocoon. You know, you should be out of there by now. Hey, back off. Let them grow. Because we're all somewhere, we ain't what we used to be and we ain't what we're going to be. And so by the Spirit of the Lord, we can be honest about the fact that God is transforming us little by little, day by day, week by week, year by year, beholding by beholding as we spend time in the presence of the Lord, getting into his word, spending time in prayer, spending time in worship, spending time in fellowship, spending time in service. All of a sudden we look back and we go, wow, look at how my life has changed. And it's God that's done it not me. Amen, church? Amen.